I was in second grade when it happened. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. I, I was thinking about it and how I would be able to pull it off for several weeks. See, my second grade teacher had something that I had been coveting for quite some time. I'm not really sure what the name of it is, but it's uh, what I call a calendar clicker. In other words, it's just this little object that basically displays the day of the month. Sometimes it looks like an apple or like a little circle. I don't even know why I wanted it at the time. Is in second grade, it, it's made of plastic. It wasn't really electronic. There were no batteries in it. All it did was display. In fact, to get it to work, you had to manually push the top of the button to actually make it change over to the next day. And so, but for whatever reason, I wanted it, and I finally got my opportunity. The teacher, if you're a teacher, be aware of how we work. We students, they told us be busy about our work, and she was going to step out for a moment, and since I had a desk right next to hers, I decided this was my opportunity, and I stole that thing right off her desk, stuck it inside of my backpack, and feared the rest of the day that I was going to be discovered. Finally got home, I ran into my room, locked the door, opened up with great expectation, with the moment that I had been waiting for, opened it up, and I began to just push the top of the button like this as fast as I could, seeing the days, just kind of, I had dreamed of this moment, just seeing it just flash in front of me over and over again, and I did this for about a minute until finally I just stopped and I realized, why in the world did I want this thing? This thing is stupid, right? It doesn't do anything. And so I wish at that moment that my senses had come to me and I had come clean and I told my teacher and brought it back to her, but I didn't. I I hid it in my sock drawer uh, for several months until Christmas came. Then wanting to get rid of it, I thought the best idea I could do was wrap it up like a Christmas gift and give it to my mom on Christmas Day. And nothing speaks of the meaning of Christmas more than giving something something that you stole, right? And I remember my mom's face on Christmas Day when she came to the realization that her son was a thief. It was just, it was just a Christmas for all of us not to remember. And my mom, of course, was quite upset, and she wasn't an idiot. She was able to put two and two together. So she made me go back and, and confess my sin and tell the teacher. And, and it, was, it was really, it was just not my proudest moment, to be honest with you. But something redeeming did come from it, and that was that the punishment was severe enough, not only from my parents, but also from my teacher, that I chose at that moment that I was not going to live a life of crime. Praise God, it wasn't really going to work out for me because I was going to get caught no matter what it was that I did. But, but theft, stealing something, is always wrong. It's not only wrong, it's annoying. If you've ever had something stolen that you've worked for for a while and somebody's just like, hey, I think I'll take that, and they take it, it's annoying. But it's always wrong. But we need to understand that there are certainly times when we steal something that there is a greater consequence depending on what it is that we steal. Actually, there's two criteria that go in that determine the consequence of of theft. It is A, who you steal from, and B, what it is that you steal, or more importantly, the value of what it is that you ultimately steal. So, for example, if you steal from your second grade teacher a little plastic ball worth next to nothing, then it is going to cost you your free time for two weeks, and you are going to have to write on the blackboard 500 times, I will not steal. That's what it's going to cost you. But if you steal from God, and if you steal something of infinite value and worth, then the consequences are far, far greater. It may actually According to the text of Scripture before us, it may actually cost you your life. 
So the story that we're talking about today is interesting because people are already going, I heard this message before out of Malachi. It was about stealing the tithes. This has nothing to do with stealing of the tithes of offerings for God. You might even be surprised what it's all about when we get to it. But here's what we want to do. Two things very simply this morning. One is we just want to look at and find out what was it that King Herod stole from God? And number two, how are you and I often guilty of doing the same? So first of all, really, what was it that he stole from him? If you were with us last week in the beginning of chapter 12, you might remember that we talked about Herod. And I have to make a, a correction. Pastors make mistakes too. And, and I had been calling him um, Herod Antipas. It wasn't Herod Antipas. It was actually Herod Agrippa. I get my Herods confused. They're all over the place in the New Testament. But just make sure we understand that and can't go back and re-record that. But it was actually Herod, a man by the name of Herod Agrippa. And the thing that we knew about him from chapter 12 is that he made a habit of persecuting these early believers. And uh, he was quite good at it. And the more that he persecuted them, he found that he found more and more favor with, with the religious leaders during the day as well as with the masses. And so he decided that if, if the people loved him persecuting everyday ordinary Christians, then they would probably really love if he began to persecute the very disciples of Jesus Christ, in which he did. He persecuted, he arrested, and put to death James, the brother of John, one of the 12 disciples, and he put him to death with a sword. And then the people loved it so much, he wanted even more. So he arrested Peter, and the plan was to do the same, to put him on trial, then put him to death in a, most likely a very similar way. But God had other plans. God decided that he didn't, wasn't done with Peter, and so what he decided to do was he was going to send an angel, and he was going to rescue him supernaturally. We talked about this last week, and chains falling off, and him going past guards, and, 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 and iron doors just opening up, and he found himself on the outside of, of the prison, and finally realized that this wasn't a dream, that this was actual reality. At that point, he, he goes, tries to get off the street, he goes to a local church where the people are there gathered together praying for his release. He tells them, in essence, what it was that had happened, gave him in great detail, and then he fled, and he went and he hid from Herod, because he knew Herod would ultimately be after him. And so, with all that in mind, we come to verse 12, and verse 12 is kind of as, as Paul Harvey, if you're old, Paul Harvey says, this is the rest of the story, right? And this is, this is it. People, all the young people are like, yeah, I've got a shirt. It's got a fish on it. And uh, no, not that Harvey. All right, different, different guy. But anyway, verse, verse 20, it, it says here, follow with me. It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Clearly, Herod, Herod had an anger problem. He seems to be angry with everybody. In fact, he ended up killing the soldiers that had let Peter out. Then he left one place, and he came down to Caesarea. And so the Bible says, now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he came to him, uh, and, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, it's really difficult to know exactly what was happening here. Um, there's some different ideas, but in, 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 in the simplest form, somehow, someway, these people from Tyre and Sidon had ticked off the king. And it's something that you didn't want to do. And they found out after ticking him off and really breaking the relationship, they found out that this may really end poorly for them because the king was in charge of all of the distribution of food. So you tick the king off. You don't have any way of getting food for your people. And so you find yourself in a place where you might really be leading your people to the point of starvation. So they had to do something. And so their plan was to use a guy by the name of Blastus to get them out of this 
trouble. Now, two things you need to know about Blastus. First of all, he has one of the coolest names ever, right? Blastus. Uh, I don't know why I wasn't aware of this name. Should have read my Bible more, or else Caden would be Blastus uh, today. Blastus Kwiatkowski. And if I do somehow, by a miracle, uh, ha- have another son, and it would be a miracle. But if, if we did, uh, it would definitely be Blastus Kwiatkowski. Can you imagine him playing sports, right? Number 10, from Yulee, Florida, Blastus Kwiatkowski. My sign, if Blastus is for us, who can be against us? Yes. And so he's got an amazing name, but he also had, Caden's probably like, thank God my dad doesn't know the Bible, right? And so, so just an incredible name, but he also had a, a very important role. He was the king's chamberlain, which means that he did more than just make sure that his, you know, the, the, the bed was tucked in at night. He was actually kind of in charge of who would have access to the king, who could get an audience with the king, and, 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 and he would be in the king's ear at all times. And so one of two things happened. Either these people from Tyre Sidon came to him and basically said, hey, listen, can you work on our behalf and try to smooth things over for us, or can we get some type of audience with the king and try to explain and try to fix things? So this is the background of what's going on. And the Bible says at this point, in verse 21, it says, and on the, uh, on the appointed day... On the appointed day, which most likely means that on the day that the people from Tyre and Sidon finally come and things seem to be settled, we also know through some extra biblical historical writings that this was some kind of festival that they were having. So the two could have overlapped. But whatever it is, the Bible says that Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, What's interesting here, and sometimes we get this, we actually have uh, extra biblical writings, that is stuff that's not within the Bible, but history that was written outside of the Bible that actually writes, actually records this very event. There was a first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who wrote on this very thing, that Herod's death. And here's what he says about that day. Speaking of Herod's garments, he said that he made whole, they were made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, which shone so brightly in the morning sun that the people hailed him as a god. Many years ago, and I often say that I would love to be able to do it again, but many years ago, uh, over 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I actually went to Israel. It was a wonderful trip. It's neat to be able to go to the different places. And what we would do is we'd open up the scriptures, and wherever we went, we would read the scripture that was fitting for that particular place. And if you go today and you go to Caesarea, it's where this ultimately took place. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a port city, and you can actually go to it. There's all types of ruins there, and there's a huge amphitheater. And, and many people believe that amphitheater that's standing there is the same amphitheater that was there that Herod came out and gave his speech and dressed in all of his royal garb. And so uh, I went and I actually stood on like this stage area and it seats literally hundreds of people. And, and we had friends going up to the top and down to the bottom and I would just speak in a normal voice and everybody could hear it no matter where you sat in that place. And I remember standing there and I, and I read this verse and I began to think to myself, and you could, you could imagine it because the sun would come right up. It was right next to the coast and the sun would come up. So apparently when he was dressed in this suit of silver, the sun comes up when he's sitting on a throne and it's shining on him and it's casting this amazing, glorious light. And he begins to speak and people begin to worship him and, and glorify him at this point. 
And the Bible then says, he says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. Josephus says the same thing and basically gives us the same clue of why he was guilty or what he was guilty of. He says, upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So both of them said at that point he collapses to his ground. The only distinction is Luke says that he dies. Then at the very end of this, we have, uh, it says that he died four days later. And so uh, at least that's what the account of Josephus was. So what was his sin? Very simply, but very seriously, he sought to steal the glory of God. Now, what a radical difference between Herod and the men of God that we've read about up to this point. The men of God up to this point seem to be doing everything they can not to receive any of the glory of what God was doing. In fact, we saw that back in chapter 10. Do you remember that, that Peter, in, in the reason sometimes that they worshiped them or mistook them for gods is because they had the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and they were performing great signs and great wonders and sometimes through the book of Acts you'll see people go, hey, they're a god, they're like the gods and immediately the disciples try to convince them otherwise and try to correct them. Again, we saw it in chapter 10 with Peter. Remember when Peter goes to Cornelius' house and all of Cornelius' friends and family are there and, and he goes in to the family or he goes into the house and all of a sudden there's this very awkward moment all of a sudden, Cornelius bows down and begins to worship him like a god. And, and, and how does Peter respond? Does he sit there and go, oh, that feels good. Yeah, just give me a little bit more than that. Or does he say, hey, listen, I'll give you five minutes to stop that. No, he, he, he comes to him and immediately he shuts him down. He says, stand up, I too am a man. He rejects any praise. He rejects any praise that ultimately belongs to God. But yet in this text, we see that, that Herod is basking in it. See, the word of God warns us. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God said himself, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And when we talk about glorifying God, uh, we're speaking of, in part of praising God, identifying who God is. And, and when we talk about glorifying something, to glorify something means to acknowledge something as truly great, as absolutely wonderful, and as superior to all others. So when we glorify God, we are drawing our attention and the attention of everybody around us to the fact that there is none like him, right? There's none like him. There's nothing else like him. None above him. None are greater than him. So to receive the glory of God for ourselves is ultimately to say that we are above all else, that we are above everyone else, and we're actually taking something that is uniquely for God and for God alone. So that's the problem with stealing the glory of God. Now, let me, let me say, I think, I think right now there's probably some folks here, if you're consistent coming week in, week out, you're probably, there's a part of you that's probably breathing this kind of sigh of relief, finally. You sit there and go, finally, a sermon that has nothing to do with me. I can hear somebody come in and go, Pastor Mike, every week, you get me. Somehow you, you get me. It's like you're, you're reading my mail. You're on the phone. I don't know what it is. You got my house bug. But every week I come in and I think there's no way he's going to apply this to me. And then the Holy Spirit begins to speak to me. And I begin to feel convicted. And all of a sudden I find myself just repenting of God and going, okay, you got me again. But not this time, buddy. There is no way I'm guilty of this. I don't own a silver suit. 
There's no way I'm going to get up in front of a stage. I can't stand being up in front of people. And they're certainly not going to sit there and go, I want everybody to praise me. In fact, Pastor Mike, I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to take this Sunday off. You just deal with all the other glory stealers, right? And so sometimes we kind of think in those kind of terms. But I want to remind you for just a moment. Uh, I want you to remind remind you that, that oftentimes... Sin is far more subtle than what we would ultimately like to believe. That it's not nearly as blatant as we often think sin is. Whenever we hear of a sin, we think of the worst imaginable kind of uh, uh, demonstration of that sin. Let me, let me give you an example. If we were to look and just kind of peruse through the Ten Commandments, it would be easy for you and I to look at them and go, okay, I'm guilty of that, but I'm not guilty of that. Guilty of that, but I'm certainly not guilty of that. You know, we come to the command, thou shalt make no graven image. All of us are sitting here going, well, I know I didn't blow that. Man, there's never been a time that I sat down and started whittling a little piece of wood, covered it with gold, and then sat down and began to worship it. That's one sin that I'm not guilty of. But the committing of that sin is far more subtle, isn't it? And what it is is, no, we've never really carved a golden image and bowed down to it, but many times you and I have created for ourselves a, a picture of God in our minds based on what we want him to be like instead of really submitting ourselves to what God says he is like through the written word of God. And that is us committing the sin of making a graven image. You're not making it outwardly with your hands, but you're making it inwardly in your mind and your heart. The same subtlety can be done with other sins, like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Again, all of us could sit there and go, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never, I've never committed adultery on my wife. And, but Jesus lets us know the subtleties. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you've even looked on a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already. And so oftentimes it's, it's far more subtle than what we might think. And I think that none of us are probably going to be the type who get up and blatantly do what Herod ultimately did. I can't picture any of you, at least those that I know, and even if I don't know you, somebody came up and go, oh, you are God. You are God among all gods. You are the holy of holies. That any of you wouldn't be like, dude, you got to quit that. All right, that's just awkward. All right, you might not do it. But there might be more of that inwardly that we actually enjoy. The praise of other people, the, the recognition of our own greatness. So, so, look, I, we're so smart. It's, it's like, I don't know if it's because we're, we're raised in kind of a church culture or whatnot, but many of us, what we often will do is something like this. We'll, we'll sit there, and in our minds, we'll think, I want people to think that I'm great, but the challenge is, is to make sure that they see how great I am without them thinking that I'm great. And so I've got to be, because if I just come out and tell everybody how great I am, they're not going to think that I'm very great. But I want them to think I'm great, but I have to do it in such a way that makes it think that hmm, I'm humble and I don't think that I'm great at all, which will make them think I'm even greater than what I ultimately am. And so we, we laugh at that, mock at that, but the truth is we're really, really smart in the way our sinful hearts are. And so how do we go about doing this? So in the beginning of the week, I got to tell you that, that once I kind of I understood kind of what the passage is about, I just began to sit there and go, man, this is extremely hard. How, how in the world do, I, do we steal the glory of God? It just doesn't make any sense. Let me, let me give you a couple ways that I think that we can do this. Four ways that we commit glory theft. By the way, we're almost done. Is this amazing? Can I get an amen? No, 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 sorry. So, um, glory thief. Um, 
let, me, let me just give you a couple ways that sometimes we're guilty, I think, of this. Is first of all, there is what I call the... By, by the way, Dave Harvey in his book, um, in one of his books, he, he kind of gives a list of these. I've kind of adopted some of them, not. Just want to make sure that I give props to his writing, give credit where it's due. But first of all, there is what I call the, the, the forgotten greatness. Forgotten greatness. Uh, I'm sure maybe you've struggled with this before where, where you sit there and, um, you, man, you're, you're serving somewhere, you're serving at work, you're serving in, in the nursery, you're serving somewhere in the church, and, man, you're killing it because you know that you are in that sweet spot of ministry. You're doing, it's lining up, the work and the job that you have is lining up with your spiritual gifts and your talents and your abilities, and, and you're killing it, and you're loving it. You love where you are, the lo- you love the people that you're serving, and a period of time goes on, and I don't know what happens, but all of a sudden, and you begin to think, you know what, I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't think anybody's ever said thank you. I've been, I've been doing this for such a long time, and it's funny because nobody's ever just kind of patted me on the back and said, hey, good job, or thank you for doing this on your behalf. Nobody's, nobody's come to me and said, hey, 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 thrown me a party. Nobody's given me a gift certificate or even a card that would sit back and, and mention. And the next thing you know the very place that you used to love and the people that you love to serve, now you find yourself, in, in, instead of loving them, resenting them and resenting the place that you are in, thinking to yourself, I need to get out of here and get somewhere else where people actually recognize how great that I actually am. And some of you are sitting back going, I've never done that. Every single one of us have done that. To be able to sit back. And so some of us kind of sit there and we think to ourselves, well, you know what? And it's easy. Look, it's easy to do this. And I may not have this perfectly right, okay? But, 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 but some of us will sit back and say, well, Mike, everyone wants to feel appreciated. Okay, I get that. But I have a hard time using that and explaining that from a biblical perspective. Does, does that make sense? In other words, it's kind of how we make each other. Somebody's all just going, well, nobody, nobody appreciates me, and it's their friend. We don't want them to feel bad, so we come up to them and go, well, brother, you know what? Everybody just wants to be appreciated a little bit. That's right, man. Just, I just want, it's kind of like saying this. Well, you know, it's kind of right, man. I want God to be glorified, but I just want a little bit of glory. Just a little bit. 2%, 5%. He can have the rest of it. Just give me a little bit of the glory. And so let me ask you this. This is where honestly do we believe that those thoughts and feelings come from? Do, do you believe that those are the leading of the Holy Spirit who is coming and in, 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 in impressing on you, hey, you were underappreciated. You deserve better. You deserve to be recognized and appreciated and praised for your hard work. You know what? If they don't appreciate you, you ought to go somewhere else and serve those that do. Do you think that that's the Holy Spirit leading us to do that? Doesn't sound at all. You know what sounds more like the Holy Spirit is to sit back and him say, you know, just wanted to remind you that nobody's recognizing anything that you're doing and that that they're not honoring you. And remember, it's far better than what you deserve. It's probably more of what the Holy Spirit would probably be laying on our heart than anything else. So sometimes you and I struggle in stealing, stealing the glory of God through forgotten greatness. You know, sometimes... We, we, we deal with it through tomorrow greatness. Now, that is us of us that sit there and go, well, you know, there's not a whole lot of great in me, but one day I will be great. I'm going to work, and I'm going to strive, 
And I might not get the attention of those who are around me, and I may not get the accolades, and I may not get the academic awards and the athletic awards, but I'm going to work harder than anybody else. Nobody's going to outwork me, and one day I'm going to get the fame and the recognition that I ultimately want to get. And so we sit back and we look at that, and some people say, well, you know, isn't ambition a good thing? Yes. Some ambition is an excellent thing. Ambition being that you're driven to do the very best that you can do. But it's just so slight, isn't it? See, there's something called selfish ambition. But selfish ambition is the reason that you're driven is because you want somebody to tell you how great you are and all it is that you have ultimately accomplished. And sometimes we are bound and driven. I know people that grew up in difficult backgrounds and their entire life was spent to try to show somebody that they were greater than what anybody ultimately thought that they would be. And so sometimes we sit there and we, 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 we begin to cause this sin or create this sin or be a part of this sin. The right ambition is to want to succeed for God's glory, not for our own. If you're a student and you want to be successful at school, why, why do you want to be successful? Want to be successful just because of a scholarship? Want to be successful just because you want your name up at the school? Or do you want to be successful just because you want people to say, man, how bright you are? Or are you desiring to be bright so that you can redirect the glory from you to God and say, anything of mine is ultimately of God? And so there's all these different types of ways. There's a tomorrow greatness. There's a if-only greatness. If you've ever struggled with this before, if-only. It's kind of sitting back going, I'm not great, but the reason I'm not great is because I haven't had the opportunities that other people have had. I know people, man, and they, they just had a better background. They had a better place. They had more money. They had somebody who really believed in them. I never had anybody believe in me. And if I just had somebody believe in me and take a little bit of time in me, I would have been great. And then there's what I call the old man greatness. All right? Now, I don't really call that. I call it former greatness. But for me, getting to be an old man, 47 years old, coming up in 50, some of you are like, you ain't your old, brother. I've got tennis shoes older than you. I get that. But I'm feeling old, Right? And so I'm at the age now that athletically and mentally, the best is probably behind me. I'm just going gonna, I'm just, I'm just to tell you, oh, no, it's not. Yes, yeah, yeah, it is, all right? And so can't run as fast. I'm slipping. My mind is slipping on things. I, I don't always, I mean, know more, but I forget more. Does that make sense? And so, yeah, you know so much. Yeah, but I forget everything. And, um, and so the former greatness, this is one of those things. And this is that power grab, that glory grab, where you and I, older gentlemen, I don't know if ladies do this, but this is what we do. Yeah, I may stink right now. I may not be fast right now. I may have my son be able to beat me in this, but let me tell you something. When I was your age, let me tell you something. <laughs> they called me the wind. Why? Because you can't see the wind. You could just feel it. I was like the wind. You couldn't even see me. I was so fast. I just blow by you. <laughs> Pull up her pants. I was great. But, but do, you, do you see in these different ways the glory grab? It's either me trying to grab the glory for myself right now, grab the glory for myself in the future, grab the glory for myself in the past, or make an excuse of why it is that I'm not be glorifying receiving the attention that I ultimately want to receive. It's often so subtle, but in our lives it's constantly, constantly a fight and constantly coming through our minds without us ever even thinking that we're struggling with the glory grab. Now, the question for you, so at the beginning of the week, I found myself thinking, is there any application to this? By the end of the week, I was sitting there thinking, everything really in my life is about trying to steal the glory of God. 
So how do we counteract it? Let me just, let, 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 before I get to that, let, let me just say something. I don't want you to think that this sermon is about not encouraging each other and thanking each other and building each other up in the faith. That's what we don't want, right? We don't want to sit there and go, man, I was going to tell him thank you, but I'm not going to because he's a glory grabber. <laughs> he's just got to, you know, it's just like, you're on your own, bro. Hey, you did a great, mm, no, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to do that. He's going to think he's God. He's going to dress, you know, in silver. You know, he's just, he's, this is what he's going to ultimately do. I don't think that's that. I think in the word of God, we see people being praised quite often and, and even a, and a spirit of gratitude. You look at Barnabas and people are writing about what he did. Why? Because it was a great encouragement to all those that were around him. You know, he, he was the son of encouragement. He didn't sit there and go, well, we'll, well we're not going to write his name because he's probably going to get a big head about it, right? So how do we, how, how do, we do that? Let me, let me just say this. I think we could direct our praise. Are y'all still with me? Is that okay? All right. Um, if, if, you're, if, if you're good at direct praise, here, here, let me just give you a little bit of encouragement on how to do it. Don't sit back and go, you're awesome. You're amazing. Wow, you, you, you killed it. I'm telling you, it is just something that stirs pride in every single one of us. Be careful with your praise, but be gracious with your praise. Go to somebody and go, brother, I just want to let you know what a blessing that was to me. I want to thank you for using your gift for the glory of God because what it did is it brought glory to God because I'm closer to God now because of it. I believe in him more. I'm giving him thanksgiving for you. Thank you so much for being faithful. Do, do you see how that's a lot different? And then, and then if the guy just sits there and goes, yeah, but tell me a little bit more about me. Then you sit there and go, yeah, this guy's heart is not right. He is a glory grabber, right? But for anybody who is genuinely pursuing God they don't want to hear how great they are. They want to hear how much now what they've done has made you realize how much greater God actually is. That's the idea of using your gifts for the glory of God. So how do we keep and protect ourselves from the glory theft? Let me just give you a couple things very quickly. First of all, be cautious how we receive praise inwardly. Be cautious how we Receive praise inwardly. When somebody praises you, what does it do in you? Does it cause you to puff up with pride or does it humble you and make you think just about how wonderful God is? In other words, when somebody comes and praises you about something that you've done or a job well done, does it sit there and you go, yes, I love this. I'll give you 10 minutes to stop this. Or, or do you pull the whole you know, passive-aggressive greatness? You know, that could be another one where you just sit there and go, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, I'm really not all that great. No, no, you are great. You are great. No, no, no. There are others greater than me. And then what you're really doing is you're just reveling in it even more, right? It's just giving you even more kind of, no, 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 I'm not great. No, yes, you are. You're, you're amazing. No, stop it, stop it. And you're just getting more and more and more. Or when you hear it, does it humble you to the point where you literally begin to sit down and go, you know what? There's nothing apart from God that is good in me. And the fact that if they see something good, I know that every gift, every talent, every ability, every stitch of intellect that I have has been given to me by a gracious God. What a mighty God we serve, Right? Number two, be cautious of what you do with praise outwardly. Be cautious what you do with praise outwardly. What is your external response when, when someone praises you? I just said that. Are you still trying to get a little bit more? Are you wanting them to be a little bit clearer? They come up and go, man, you're awesome. Well, tell me exactly how it is that you find me to be awesome. That probably would not be the best way about it. But what you do want to direct, what you do want to do is sincerely from the heart, redirect them to God. 
and say, hey, man, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and saying something to me. You don't have to do this exactly, but I just want to let you know I know that there's nothing good in me apart from God. I just want to let you know I thank you for that because that means that God is working in me and I give him all the praise and the honor and the glory. You know, it, it seems like such a passive thing when an when a, when a, when a, when a athlete says, because so many of them say it, even ones that are not believers, which is weird, is, hey, man, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or I just want to thank God. But the truth of the matter is they're doing exactly what they should do. They sit there and go, bro, let me tell you, I know you might be impressed with my talents, but don't be impressed with me. Be impressed with God who is the giver of these things. Draw attention to him. Matthew 5, 16 says it like this, and the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good work, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Number three, determine what is driving you. What's driving you to be the best? What's driving you to be excellent? Is it just because you, you sit back and you go, man, I just want to be the best, best that I possibly can? Or are you driving, or are you, are you driven to be the best and do your best because you want people to tell you how great you are? Or are you being driven to do your very best because you want God to be glorified in this? Number four, determine to follow the example of Christ. Determine to follow the example of Christ. I'm going to quote from Kevin DeYoung, who, uh, and I'll let you know, Kevin DeYoung has been really helpful to me in some of these passages that have been difficulty, some of his work in the book of Acts. He says this. He said, Herod grasped at deity. Christ was deity, yet he did not consider equality with Christ a thing to be grasped. Herod causes enemies to suffer for his name. Christ allowed himself to suffer at the hands of his enemies for his sal- their salvation. Herod strolled into town in royal robes decked in silver. Christ entered the world naked, poor, and in a manger. Herod, the glory thief, breathed his last and was eaten by worms. Christ, the humble glory of God, breathed his last and then rose again, ascended into heaven, and was exalted at the right hand of the Father. For you and I, every day, we have got to strive. See, just think about how freeing this is for a moment. For some of you that are sitting there and at home and you're not feeling appreciated the way that you want to be, feel appreciated, you are racked with bitterness. Many of you, when you go out and you want to be great so much that the only way to cope with it, y'all look up here just for a minute if you don't mind. The way that you cope with it is you down everybody else around you and you make them feel so small in order to be able to just draw attention to yourself. You are in bondage to your own greatness. Some of you can't even admit when you're wrong. When somebody else is saying something that you disagree with, you can't sit there and go, I could possibly be wrong. You just think of all the ways that the person who's talking is, is wrong and that they're not making any sense. There's no humility in you and I. I know this very, very well. I know the desire to want people to tell you, you did good. I know the desire of wanting people to go, hey, that's great. Hey, you're talented. Hey, you're gifted. And I'm just telling you right now, it's a horrible trap. Because even when you get what it is that you want, all it does is leave you wanting more. And the only answer is to sit back and go, brother, if I receive any praise at all, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you. We give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord, I pray that today would even be a day of repentance, whether it be in individual lives, whether it be blatant, whether it be far subtle. 
God, I pray that people would ask themselves, even this morning, God, why am I trying to be excellent? It's not wrong to be excellent. We're called to do it, but we're called to do it for your glory, not for our own. How do we respond to praise, God? Do we redirect it to you, and do we mean it in our hearts? What is motivating us to do what it is that we are doing? God, let us not be guilty of stealing the glory of God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to be down here. I'd love to talk with you just a little bit, but do business with God. If, if you want to know more about Christ, I'm going to be down here. We'd love to talk with you about Christ. And, and look, I made that plea every week. As sooner or later, somebody's going to take me up on that offer. They're just going to sit there and go, you know, I just, I need to know more about Christ. I need to know more about him. At some point, people are going to hear a message and they're going to sit there and go, man, this is it's definitely me. This is definitely, I'm definitely trying to steal the glory of God. I need to repent. I need to turn from this. I need to get this right. May today be that day. All right, let's, let's respond as we sing.